this is something that is part of our maturity progression, as part of our growing up as an industry, as a practice. This is something that we have to evolve into. We are not special in that regard. We are not different. We can probably look at other industries or other professions or other functions that kind of went through the process and figure out what can we learn and leverage from that. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's your own levy, CISO at Dolby, former CISO at a well-known healthcare insurance company, an investor and advisor and an all-around veteran of the industry. We are talking today about the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, and its March 2022 proposed amendments to enhance and standardize disclosures related to cybersecurity for publicly traded companies in the U.S. The proposal is called the Cybersecurity Risk Management Strategy Governance and Incident Disclosure. This is a big deal because it's not just about disclosure, but also about the management and governance of cybersecurity risk and incidents, and they even talk about roles and responsibilities. So there are a lot of direct implications at the CISO level and the board level, both, and your own and I are diving into this one, and I think you're going to enjoy it. So your own, thank you so much for coming back to the ranch. Thank you, Alan. Always a pleasure being here. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. All right, so for our listeners who didn't catch you last time, why don't you give us a brief bit about your background in cyber, a little bit about your day job. Yeah, so um, Yaron Levy, I am the CISO for uh, Dolby Labs. So Dolby, you've seen us pretty much receive our logo in your stereo system when you went to the cinema, on your TV. So we basically focus on bringing more experiences to more people worldwide. So just it's a fun industry. You are making fun things for people. That is cool. Yep. Been in the security for probably 15 plus years. Different companies was the CISO at Blue Cross Blue Shield here in Kansas City until December of 2020. And also spent time in other companies in the past. Cerner Corporation, big healthcare IT company, Intuit, eBay, and others. Guest from time to time here on the ranch. Happy to be back here again, Alan. Fantastic, man. I'm so glad you came back. And I'm so glad you suggested this topic because this is one I've been wanting to get into. But I wanted to find a guest who had done more research than I had because, frankly, I've been so busy. I've barely scratched the surface on this thing. And this thing goes deep. It does. Yeah. So let's contextualize it a little bit first. So this is a proposed set of amendments and not a ruling. Correct. What does that mean in terms of the real world? When does the impact hit? What should we expect? How much change should we see coming? What does this mean to us, given that it's proposed? So the proposal came out in March, and it's currently open for comments. What I'm hearing is that it's expected to become a rule in October. But keep in mind that the version of the ruling has been floating around since about 2018. So it's not completely new. Okay. I think it's safe to assume that at some point it will become official. Whether this time around or the next time around or sooner or later, I think it's safe to assume that given what's happening around the world and how cyber becoming or cybersecurity becoming more top of mind for a lot of organizations, following breaches like Colonial Pipelines and some other things, I think it's just a matter of time that will become, or some form of that will become official. In terms of what we can expect in the real world, well, like I said, with everything happening around us over the last several years, we see security becoming a higher priority and a higher maturity in many organizations. Mm -hmm. By and large, organizations understand that security is not a luxury anymore or something that doesn't apply to them. 
and whether you sell hammers or provide the latest cool social applications, more organizations recognize the importance of security. Yep. Personally, I don't think that a regulation is the only reason to do security, but if it's a motivator for some organizations, so be it. Let's take the leverage that we can. Yeah. And then also we need to remember that regulations are never proactive. Right. And they're usually a response to things that happened in the past. So this is part of the overall maturity progression mm-hmm. and how we evolve. And that's just another step. Yeah, that's a very yeah. astute point there. And I know to your point, I know a lot of CISOs who are already acting as if this is going to be law and are already yep. heading towards compliance with it. I've personally witnessed friends of mine treating it like, oh, we got to get ready for this. It's coming. It's going to be real. And I'm not at a publicly traded company right now. Thankfully, I haven't had to knuckle down. And that's part of the reason I hadn't researched this one so much is I knew it was a bullet I was at least for now dodging. But that's what I'm hearing on the field is I've got friends that are saying, yeah, 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 this is, we're already treating this like it's real. And our board is taking this seriously. And the CEO is taking this seriously. And the CISO is taking this seriously. Is that the same kind of buzz you're hearing? I think, yeah, that's pretty much what I'm also hearing around the industry. Again, if anything, it will push organizations to better improve the risk management practices and better mature the conversation about security from taking it from predominantly technical risk conversation Mm -hmm. to more of a business risk conversation, which I think that's ultimately when we need to go. Hallelujah. Okay. So let's talk about the disclosure piece here, because the disclosure piece to me, it's where they spent the most attention in this proposal, to my mind, having read through it all and read the summaries and looked at the analyses from the various experts or so-called experts in the industry, whoever they might be. It seems that the disclosure piece was really a core focus for them. And the part that's interesting to me is they talk about having to file a Form 8K within four business days of when a security incident is determined to be material, right? Four business days, you have to file a new 8K. And their definition of material, of course, is the definition that's already sort of defined in securities laws. And if you look at the various securities laws in the U.S., you know, what they're saying with material, this is basically impact to bottom line, like Mm -hmm. something vague and soft like brand damage isn't necessarily a material risk by those definitions as I understand it, but anything that truly impacts bottom line, uh, shareholders, et cetera, would most definitely be. And so brand damage could, in theory, even fall into that category. It's a little vague, and that's another area I want to dig into. But let's start with what is the definition of material as they refer to it in this document directly, as opposed to securities case law kind of thing, and then a little bit more about this 8K thing? What do you know there? Yeah, absolutely. Excellent questions. So I think the proposed rule doesn't define the materiality in the cyber context just yet. I think it's a little open, it's a little vague at the moment. And it's also probably safe to assume that this point may be contested in the courts and things like that. But I think we probably expected to get more clarity in the future. And maybe as part of this comments period between March and whenever the SEC is going to make it a rule, I assume that that's probably going to be a lot of the feedback they're going to receive, I mean, from different organizations about, okay, what is considered or what is defined as material cyber incident? But I think, like you said, in the more traditional sense, piece of information is considered material if it's reasonable to expect that the disclosure of that information will impact the company's stock price. So ultimately, it was created to protect shareholders and investors. Straightforward definition there, but there's lots of room for interpretation. And that's why I bring this up, right? Because brand damage, well, brand damage potentially has a stock impact, but how do you measure the stock impact of brand damage? Can you prove that the stock went down a dollar because of brand damage? Or is that a vague and fuzzier thing? You can dodge the 8K requirement and not file. Like this is where I was going when I was asking my question. Absolutely. The hacker mindset. I'm always looking for the hole in the system, right? (laughs) Where are the problems? And you know, there's also some other interesting aspects where I've seen some academic papers and Uh I can't pull them right now because I don't remember where I filed them, but I know I have them on my computer somewhere. And also 
there was a blog post that was written by one of my friends, Gunnar Peterson, mm-hmm. years ago. I want to say maybe like 10 years ago or so. But they actually looked at the performance of the stocks of companies that got breached. Okay. And the interesting part is that even though usually like a dip after yeah. a breach, in the long run, you see a lot of those companies actually outperform the market. So not advocating, I mean, for companies to get breached because of that. It's not good for business. But it's interesting to your point, like how would you define materiality? Like what does that include? Are you looking at it like right now or in the future? Right. Who knows? I think there's going to be like interesting considerations to look into. Ultimately, breach is not a good thing. We all know that. Yeah. And we have to do our best to protect the company, to balance the risk properly and manage that. But again, it's going to be interesting how that's going to be defined and how that's going to be measured and how, because to your point, it could be interpreted in many, many different ways. And the four-day thing is the other part that popped out in my mind, because as soon as you say it's a material risk, we have to file an 8K. And an 8K is a standard sort of statement of impact, or it's not a 10K, which is filed regularly. An 8K is filed when an event occurs. And now they're saying cyber events qualify as 8K events, right? And they're saying you have to do it within four days. I have been in the supply chain, probably 50% of my career I've been in companies that were somebody else's supply chain, video conferencing, telecom, whatever products I made or services I delivered, SaaS offerings I had, whatever, I was someone else's supply chain. And as a result, being the CISO at a supply chain company, I was frequently sent these questionnaires and all the usual, do you have SOC 2 and are you secure and do you have this and do you do that? But inevitably, there's something in those questionnaires and in those contracts about a reporting period. If there's some kind of a breach and are the customer's data, we're a customer of your company, our data is impacted, you know, you're going to notify us with them and we'll blah, 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 blah as a result. That blip is very often suggested to be 24 hours I've seen on first drafts of contracts. Mm-hmm. And I have also seen it pushed out to as far as two weeks and it's hovered anywhere in that range. People always come in saying 24 hours and the people that actually are the supply chain come back and say 24 hours is unrealistic. We can't even notify all of our own people in 24 hours. There's no way you're getting notified ahead of our own people and da 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 And so the point is four days to me, in my experience, having signed dozens of those contracts over the years. That's really aggressive. Four days to drop everything, say, oh, it's definitely material. It's definitely an impact. It was definitely caused by the breach. Here's the facts. Here's the figures. And here's what we're reporting. Like four days to turn all that around is impressive. And it's going to be an effort. And we probably will need to prepare for that. And you're right. I mean, we've seen things that are sometimes as little as 24 hours and even sometimes even below that. Yeah. I remember sometimes seeing a contract from a client that was asking for three hours. Wow. Obviously, it's... How do you meet that, right? I mean, how do you meet them I in mean, that requirement? But the interesting thing is that the SEC is proposing the four business days after the organization determines it has experienced what they call a material cybersecurity incident. Mm-hmm. And the question again is that definition, right? How do we qualify that? Right. Once it's qualified or until it's qualified, then you may have a grace time. But once it's qualified, then the question is like, okay, now the clock start ticking. Actually, when you read the proposed ruling, They actually define and they say it's an unauthorized occurrence or conducted through an organization's information systems that jeopardizes the confidentiality, integrity, or availability of an organization's information system or any information residing therein. Okay, so they're falling on CIA and they're falling on infrastructure. Yes, but it's broad. That's very broad. I mean, you could argue that a lot of things can fit into that. Yep. So... It's interesting. It's pretty broad. It's going to make it difficult. I don't know if I'm concerned very much about the time once you determine to report. I mean, yes, we could argue four days, five days, 10 days, 20 days. There are pros and cons to each thing. Yeah. But how do you make that determination of what is that material incident? There are different ways of how people are doing that. I think one of the things or 
This is not new. And if you think about, take HIPAA as an example. Mm-hmm. HIPAA has a breach notification rule, and it's a pretty decent one. I think they did a good job defining an a breach. And basically, it calls for a risk assessment based on four factors to determine whether an incident is actually a breach. Mm-hmm. And if you determine that, then you have 60 days in the case of HIPAA, yeah. not four days. Yep. But here's the interesting thing. They talk about a breach. The SEC is talking about an incident. Yes. And these are two different things. These are very different things. And that's exactly where I was about to drill in. Because I thought of an example. Because you have an incident. I thought of a crazy example. You wake up one morning as the CEO and find out that your customer's data is all over the internet. Okay? Okay. Has an incident occurred? Yeah, maybe. Okay. Let's even say yes. <laughs> okay. Do we know yet if it was a cyber incident? Could have been a disgruntled employee took a stack of paper with him. You don't even know if infrastructure or cyber was involved at all. You don't know if IT or technology was involved. This could have just simply been a person sharing a physical book with somebody else. And then somebody photocopied it, and now it's all over the internet. So there's an example of like, okay, so we have an incident. We'll even agree that that's an incident. To your point, even that's not necessarily 100% locked in, just to say that. Now, is it material? That's its own conversation. And was it cyber? And that's its own conversation. At what point in all of that do you suddenly click it all together and say, it was definitely an incident, definitely cyber, definitely material. Now the clock's ticking. I got four days to report. There are all manner of spectrum there on all three of those slider bars where you could be completely confused and not 100% on any one of the three. Yes, it was cyber. Yes, it was material. No, it's not an incident. Yes, it was an incident. Yes, it was material. No, it wasn't cyber. Yes, it, you know what I'm saying? Like Absolutely. There's chaos there to me. And to insist that snap four days. To add to that, and if you also consider supply chain, and you mm-hmm. consider all the third parties that we're mm-hmm. using, and sometimes how our systems are being used over like a third and a fourth party sometimes. Yes. yes. And it could be like maybe an incident on the fourth party that ultimately impacted you and you suffered the breach essentially, but not directly on you. So where do you demark? What is the demark line? How do you draw the line between, okay, what's the scope of what we're responsible for and what we need to report and what we don't need to report? Right. That's going to be interesting. Yes, that's another, I'm thinking of some real world examples just from the last year where it turned out to be the supply chain was the source of the leak. If it was a cyber material event, if we're going to keep using those three terms, mm-hmm. yes, it was cyber. Yes, it was an incident. Yes, it was material, but it wasn't the primary entity's cyber infrastructure or IT infrastructure that was at fault. It was a third party altogether. And so is the third party obligated to report? Are you obligated to report? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of things that I guess will need to be flashed out over time. Yeah. But it also brings like another interesting point. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something that a lot of people, I don't know if they always kind of think about or don't think about, who is responsible and who is accountable. The old racy chart. Exactly. Because one would argue that even if it was a third party that you're using, but ultimately it's your data or you're the company, again, yeah. Are you accountable or are you responsible? I mean, so right. there's a lot of gray areas that I think will need to be discussed and cleared over time. Yep. Again, it's part of our maturity progression. It's part of how we growing up as an industry, as a practice. Yep. It will be interesting to see where it goes. And yeah, we're going into some uncharted territory today. Let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. We get it. Another vendor running another podcast ad, trying to get you to check out their product. Instead of explaining to you what our amazing sponsor Axonius does, we've brought in an Axonius customer to fill you in. 
Take it from Jason Loomis, Chief Information Security Officer at MindBody. The sheer excitement of my team to have visibility into what's in our environment and have it all in one location is just, I I can't express how important that is for us. Want to learn more about how MindBody enhanced their asset visibility and increased their cybersecurity maturity rating with Exonius? Watch the video at exonius.com forward slash MindBody. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com forward slash Mind body. Okay, so we've talked about disclosure with the four-day turnaround, the 8K. We talked about material definition. We talked about incident definition a little bit. Now we talk about the 10K and 10Q forms, and this is the scheduled filing forms as opposed to the when an incident occurs 8K forms. They're saying that a series of previously unreported, immaterial, and separate incidents would need to be disclosed in the 10K and 10Q as well if and when they become material in aggregate. So this is important. If you know you filed your 8K on a specific known incident, obviously that's going to appear in your 10K later as well. But now they are saying a series of previously unreported, immaterial and separate incidents would need to be disclosed in the 10Q if and when they become material in aggregate. That is a mind blower to me because again, I get it. Anybody who's done vulnerability management and anybody who's studied kill chains knows that three smalls can make a big. And that's the logic there. And I get that logic. But again, what point do I determine that this random mishmash of sorted things suddenly is material and in aggregate? And do I have to wait for the aggregation to occur at the hands of the bad guys? Do I have to hypothesize it? Do I have to spot this one thing over here and this one thing over there and this one thing over there and say, well, hypothetically, this would be an aggregate and it would be material if they were to be. And again, we're talking about incidents. There's a lot getting loaded into that term too. I'm going to actually address it from maybe a bit of slightly different angle. But it reminds me of something that I heard you saying several times on this show and also on the previous one. Mm-hmm. And I remember, and I used that metaphor several times, where you talked about the fact that where we are today in security as a practice, it's the same where finance was before the gap rules, the yes. general accounting yes. practices, yes. right? And this is part of the challenge. Yep. Because if we don't have an accepted and agreed upon gap rules for security... We're always going to be thrashing. Exactly. Like, what are we measuring against? We have a lot of frameworks, and they're similar, but they're also different. Yep. And some of those frameworks are not, or actually I would say most of those frameworks, are not very definite, and they're not also very prescriptive. Mm-hmm. So even within the framework, there's a lot of like room for interpretation. And the interesting thing about it is like if you look at, like, like even within the federal government, by and large, I mean, all of the frameworks within the government are based on NIST. Yeah. But even the agencies will create their own flavor based on NIST. And sometimes you would see they even contradict each other. Yes. Oh, yes. So, again, it's kind of going back to what you said. We don't have those gap rules, if you will, for security, right? Yeah. I was talking to a friend the other day and he lamented about different things about our lives and practices and securities and whatnot, right? And he said something which I thought was like pretty funny, but I think it was actually also true when, if you think about it this way, take two CFOs. Mm Mm-hmm. And ask them, okay, how do you run a finance practice? Mm-hmm. They will probably agree on most things. Right. But you take two CISOs and you ask them, okay, how do you run the security practice? You will probably not going to find two that are going to agree. I mean, you get two very different answers, yep. right? So that's part of that. We don't have those gap rules. We don't go to business school, get an accounting degree, and kind of rose over time I mean, to be right. a CFO. Yep. It's different. I don't know if it can ever be the same, but it's... Again, we need to remember, we're still a very young practice. Yeah, we are. We've only been around, what, 20-ish? Yeah. 30 years, maybe? Yeah, county's been around a tad longer than that. 
Yeah. <laughs> and we are doing better. We are yeah. progressing. We are accelerating. But at the same time, we still have a lot to do. Yeah. It gets interesting because, and I'm philosophically with you, we need that centralization. I think it's desperately overdue as an industry. We're ready for that big step. There's going to be a lot of us CISOs that balk at it because we've always done it this way and the standard we settled on was the other one. There's going to be a lot of that. There's going to be a lot of this doesn't fit my shop. There's going to be a lot of, oh, this feels like unnecessary regulation and hassle and overhead and headache and big brother oversight and all those things. There's going to be some of that if we do this. There is going to be some of that guaranteed. But what's interesting to me is the SEC is putting a foot forward in what is ultimately, and you've already alluded to this in an earlier question here, it's going to fall down to a certain extent on case law. Because SEC is saying we've got a rough idea based on securities law of what material means. We're not going to define it in this document. We're relying on the basically case law definition of it in existing securities law and interpretations that have gone through the courts, et cetera, et cetera. Incident is going to run through the same process. Cyber is going to run through the same process. Like all these things are going to get defined by case law ultimately. And so the centralization that this represents, I think, is still a good couple of steps shy of that vision you're describing of having something like gap accounting practices for us, right? Like I don't see that we're going to get there right away. I think this is a good right. step, but I don't think we're getting there right away. It will take time. But here's just an interesting and just kind of trivia point maybe for your next cybersecurity trivia night. There's actually NIST 814 uh-huh. published in 1996. Yep. And it's actually titled Generally accepted principles and practices for security information technology system technology <laughs> systems. <laughs> so somebody thought about it, right? <laughs> but we're still didn't fully adopt it. That this right, right, right. We, we never so, adopted yeah. that one. And to your point <laughs> so about maybe, the maybe, NIST, maybe go and restart back there again, start all over again. So there you yeah. go. I worked at a shop that was international and that ran off of both NIST and ISO. And every audit we did internally, we had to incorporate both NIST and ISO. We had to do both, and that's a mess to try to reconcile and dealing oh. with the overlaps and contradictions there. And just recently, I've done a bunch of work with NIST 800-161 and 800-82, both of which are overlays on top of 53 with unique interpretations and twists for respectively supply chain and critical infrastructure. Even within the NIST 800 world, you don't have consistency or uniformity. So there it is. So we've talked about disclosure. We've talked about on-the-spot disclosure with the four-day turnaround in the 8K. We've talked about... Regular disclosure. Now, this whole aggregate events thing, do we want to talk a little bit more about that or do we feel like we've covered that one enough? This idea that three smalls can make a big, how do I make that determination and when do I report? I mean, that's really, (laughs) that's it. That's the challenge. I guess we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see how that's going to evolve. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to pivot because disclosure is what the ruling is mostly about, but then they get into some really interesting stuff. They talk about governance and even management of cybersecurity risk. Companies would be required to disclose their cybersecurity risk management and strategy. So disclosure is now not just of events and incidents, it's disclosure of your management and strategy. This includes management's roles and relevant expertise. I'm going to emphasize that phrase right there. In assessing and managing cybersecurity risk, this includes disclosure of any policies and procedures And this is big. We're not even into the actual personnel and the roles yet officially here with this piece of it. And yet we're already talking about relevant expertise, policies, program, and management. This is starting to put some real pressure on organizations to not just give lip service, right? Like, what's your take on this one? Yeah, so I think history is always interesting, right? I mean, we always have to look at history and learn from history. Until Cyprus and Oxley came out in 2002... Publicly traded companies didn't even require to have somebody who can read financial statements on the board of directors. Right. Which is crazy to think about it. Is that can you imagine having a publicly traded company 
without any single director on the board that can read financial statements. Right. It's kind of unthinkable, right? I mean, it's like right. it's crazy to think about these days, but only 19, 20 years ago. Yeah. So to your point about expertise, this is something, again, we are evolving, we're learning. This is something that we'll have to have. And I think overall, companies will need to strengthen that muscle. It's not just about the CISO, but it's also other functions within the organization around risk management, mm -hmm. around how cyber risk ties together with business risk overall and financial yeah. risk, you know, and so on. Yep. Definitely a lot of room for all of us as an industry to improve and mature. Personally, I, I just don't understand how any organization can function without having a security strategy or any strategy for that matter. Right. If you are a new CISO in your organization, whether you're the first ever CISO for them or not, I don't expect you to have a strategy the day you walk in the door. Right. But I think that this is the first thing you need to create is that strategy. At least have a direction. Where are we going? Mm -hmm. Have something that will inform everybody around you about, okay, here's the direction. And then you can start arguing the right direction, the wrong direction, whatever, but you still have to have something. And I know that oftentimes, and then you kind of hear that all the time, like what are you going to accomplish in your first, whatever, 90 days or whatnot, people rush to execute. Yeah. But this is always remind me like my favorite books, Art of War, Sun Tzu. Okay. And one of the quotes from there is that strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. But tactics without strategy is the noise before defeat. There you go. You have to have both. Yes. You have to understand, first of all, where you're going and then, okay, how you're going to get there. Yeah. You can't have one without the other. So I think in this context, the same thing applies here. I think as we mature, as a practice, as an industry overall, as we more and more understand the implications and the impacts of security on everything we do, pretty much, that strategy is something that is very important for us to have. And I would assume that every company will need to have one. There you go. That's a good overview, and that's a nice segue into, okay, so we've got our strategy now. We've got our management, our policies, our procedures. We've published all that, and now we do get into specific roles. And this is the part where, again, back to the buzz in the community, you know, my CISO friends that are prepping for this and assuming this has happened, there's two groups of people I've seen that are very happy and very excited about this proposal. And the one group is people who want to become CISOs and are thinking there's going to be a lot of CISO slots suddenly opening up. Like the folks that haven't gotten their first CISO role but have been looking for it, if this stuff flips over from proposal to law overnight, there's going to be boatloads of new CISO hires and there's going to be all these people that have been wanting to be a CISO getting their first shot at the gig. That crowd is excited about it. And the other crowd that I've seen that's excited about it are the CISOs that have been around for a while, like you and me, who are now going, ooh, I could get a seat on the board. And so I think both crowds are very excited about this prospect, right? There's kind of a board level and a CISO level proposal tied up in all this. And they talk about whether there is a CISO or not, where that individual reports into, whether there's expertise on the board itself. The board of directors, governance over cybersecurity is called out in the sense of how cybersecurity risks are considered in terms of business strategy. This is to your earlier point here, risk and financial oversight and which members of which committees on the board fulfill this function as well. So they are very, very much getting into the roles now. And what do you think? Is this the right time for people to be excited about, ooh, there's going to be a little more CISO jobs open up. There's going to be more board seats open up for CISOs. Is that where you see it going? Yeah, that's really, really interesting. I don't know. I think just to the comments we made earlier about if we do draw the parallel to Sarvins and Oxley, I think on one hand, yes, it's going to be beneficial for companies given that security is becoming such a high risk in this digital world mm -hmm. to have a representation on the board. 
that can help represent and help kind of manage that risk and provide oversight for that risk. So I think from that perspective, again, similarly to what Sarbanson Oxley did for financial risk, things like that, I think it's important. What I'm struggling with is how will that function without having the security, quote unquote, gap rules in place? Right. So what standard are you going to hold yourself to? How are you going to measure? How are we going to provide it? There are several, I know there are a couple of uh, initiatives in the industry that there's a gentleman by the name of Bob Zukis. Digital Directors um, Network. The Digital Network, right? And, and Bob has been beating this drum and championing a lot of those kind of ideas and proposals. And you yeah. know, he was been very vocal on like, hey, we have to create those things. We have to create those frameworks. We have to manage the risk properly because you know, that's and important. He's, he's roped in some real talent into that organization. And a lot Absolutely. of folks... I really respect have been through his program and gotten his stamp. Yep. So that's one. The NACD have yeah. some programs in place. So I think overall, I think it's a really positive move in terms of, again, elevating the conversation, mm-hmm. educating, providing more expertise, providing more knowledge, which ultimately all of us will benefit from. Yeah. All of us like community, society in general, right? Because again, we're so dependent on that technology. We're so dependent on this digital world and it can be abused, as we've seen, for many bad things. So I think it's warranted for us to have and to elevate that and to continue through that. And I think putting that at the board level or raising that to the board level, which we already see happening. I yeah. know many CISOs regularly report to the audit committees and to the board of directors. It's definitely something that is top of mind for a lot of CEOs and boards and so on. So we're going to continue to see that rising. Yep. And I, I think, think, it's, I think it's, so too. It's important, yeah. I think so too. And it's interesting you cited DDN, NACD. There's a piece there, and this ties back to your strategy and tactics comment from Sun Tzu, is we oftentimes in the cyber world look at the framework like NIST 800-53 or CSF or ISO 27001. We look at the framework and think of that as the strategic. And the actual implementation of the various controls to fulfill that framework is the tactical. Mm -hmm. And what we're really saying is we have to elevate this level of discourse one more level up to where the framework really is the tactical because the strategic is how do you take a cybersecurity framework and integrate it into a greater world of business, business risk, financial planning, business planning. It's the piece that isn't in most of the cyber standards is the part that's bigger than cyber. And that's right. where the standards are lacking to me. And that's where, in my mind, that's kind of where the SEC is going with all this in the first place is they're trying to hone in on that deficit. It's like, okay, exactly. great. So you've got an 800-53 and you can check a bunch of boxes and show that you deployed this tool and that tool and conformed with this requirement here, there, and there. But how does that fit into the bigger business picture? How does that fit into both the management and the governance of your business? How is it benefiting and affecting shareholders, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think that's the missing piece that SEC is trying to hone in on here. That's kind of my take on it. Yeah, no, I, I think- That's where that that's strategic a, that's overhead good, is yeah. required. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's a good point. All right. Well, listen, we are getting close to time here. Do you have any more closing thoughts, comments on all this SEC proposal? Any other words of wisdom you want to share with the audience? Well, again, I think like as we talked about before, it's a matter of time. Whether it's this time around or next time around, something will happen. Yeah. I don't think it's a matter of, hey, it's if. It's again, it's a matter of when. Borrowing from this sentence that we hear a lot about breaches or whatnot, right? Right. But again, this is something that as part of our maturity progression, as part of our growing up as an industry, as a practice, mm-hmm. this is something that we have to evolve into. Yeah. And we are not special in that regard. We are not different. We can probably look at other industries or other professions or other functions that kind of went through the process and figure out what can we learn and leverage from that. So yeah, build good relationships with your finance department and the finance teams. 
and talk to them about how they think about financial risks and business risks and things like that, I think, yeah, we have a lot to learn from each other. Yeah, we do. That's great advice. That's fantastic. All right, your own Levy, I got one last question for you. I ask all my guests, you get a magic wand, you get to wave it and change one and only one thing about the entire world of cybersecurity. It could be people, process, technology, anything goes. You get to change one thing about cybersecurity. What's the one thing you would change with your magic wand? Well, that's so hard just to pick just the one. But I think just kind of given our conversation here, I will go with give Alan finally his agreed upon gap rules for security. That's my <laughs> magic wand. Wave that. And if we can get that, I think that will help us there we a go. lot. There we the go. Way. And I can so, quit using yeah. that metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right. Well, your own. thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>